Welcome back, David Penn. Uh, another uh, installment, another episode of the Professor Penn podcast. And I've been in the live chat with uh, viewers and listeners and enjoying building relationships. And it's just great. I want to thank uh, Free People Radio uh, for giving me this forum. Uh, Free People of America, coming at you soon. I'm going to keep saying it because it puts the pressure on me. Tireget.com. That's T-I-R-E-G-E-T.com. 14,000 different kinds of tires in stock for all your tires needs. You've got to buy tires. You buy them from Tireget. You fund the movement. It's a win-win. PrecinctStrategy.com. A tutorial on how to get in the game of politics. Our sponsors. Uh, we love our sponsors. We're forming our own political economy. We're forming our own movement together. Uh, I'm in a little bit better mood today than I was a couple of days ago, only because I got used to what's going on. I, you know, you get used to it. I'm a little bit like a frog getting boiled in a pot. Get used to it. I mean, can't feel bad every minute of every day. Uh, but I felt pretty bad when I did the last podcast. And conditions have not improved. I'm just better. And I started out, if you don't know who that was, that's Oscar Peterson. Oscar Peterson is no longer with us. Oscar Peterson was a jazz great. And I put this up as a giant, well, what do they call it? The New Jersey salute to Henry Ford and Rockefeller and all these foundations that were eugenicist and the Margaret Sangers, the Adolf Hitlers. Because, you know, this, uh, this uh, black population is very undesirable for these people, the Jews, the blacks, the Catholics. You know, let's just clip them out. Undesirables. You know, they're subhumans. See, there it goes. I'm going to keep working on this. They were subhumans to these people. And I just thought we'd put Oscar Peterson up there. You know, Henry, Henry Ford, he sponsored square dancing as a... Uh, <clears throat> alternative to jazz. He thought the Jews, you know, and the blacks had started jazz and that was going to undermine American culture, you know, American government, jazz, an American art form, a true American art form, like we need a true American foreign policy, like we need a true American domestic policy. And here's an art form <clears throat> that was created by um, Americans, for Americans, and it's just the virtuosity is, is incomparable. And I just thought I'd throw that out there for all the people that uh, want to see me as a subhuman. And because I've practiced untold hours on both piano and violin, to reach that level of virtuosity, I can just say I didn't get there. I tried. At least I tried. So I understand intellectually and physically, emotionally, what it takes to play like that. And it's uh, really the opposite of a subhuman. It's superhuman. In fact, Tanner, let's just play it one more time, just because it's just, you know, the best that humanity has to offer.
sometime. Get up, practice piano, I don't know, eight, ten hours a day. Maybe you'll get there. I wouldn't preclude the possibility, but that's a miracle, right? Playing music like that's a miracle. That man is plugged into something that uh, we would all like to be plugged into. That's a very coherent piece of virtuosity. And uh, I just think it's great that we uh, have an opportunity to come together as Americans and recognize the brilliance that's in our country. That is brilliant. And as we stand here uh, with a bunch of people that are, you know, careening us down a path towards nuclear war, where uh, such virtuosity, such creativity would become a very rare thing, uh, it's just a great antidote to that. I don't want to see our institutions and our history and our all the great creations of humanity destroyed by these, you know, mad, mad people. They're mad. And, you know, we just haven't called them mad. We haven't called them crazy uh, because they've been calling us crazy. So we're going to sit at, you know, two sides of the room and we're going to, you know, hurl insults at each other. Uh, and I don't think that's very productive. I think it's much more productive what we're doing together. We're building a community. Politics is about numbers. And uh, we need to really uh, come to grips with the fact, as, as American people, that our leadership, they're not really into us. Uh, <laughs> they've gotten a job in show business, and uh, they don't care about where they came from. So it's really up to us, the American citizens, to come together, practice self-governance, and get involved here and turn the tide. We can do it. We're going to do it because we have to do it. As I said on the last podcast, save your grandkids, right? We're never too old to grow a set of principles. We have some things we're working on here, and I, I'm trying to get us coalesced into an organization that will start here in Minnesota and create a network of people, and we'll work together, and that'll be the Minnesota chapter. We want to have 50 chapters, 50 states, 50 local organizations of people all working to do a step-by-step refreshing of the American experiment. I just want to play, uh, I, you know, I get some things in my mind. I go back and I review the previous podcast, and certain things just, I, I talked about it extensively, but it's so bad I got to talk about it a little bit more. Tanner, can we just get LBJ Start at 53 seconds in. It's just a short bit. I just want to highlight this uh, politics. I is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen to reject the blind violence that has struck Dr. King. That's good. That's good. Okay. I'm only putting this up here for a second. We're going to come back to LBJ. He's such a wonderful figure in our political history. What a guy. 
But I just wanted to highlight how sophisticated some of these uh, magicians are. In his case, he's kind of a wizard. Uh, The blind violence. You know, like Martin Luther King just was struck down by... uh, it was just a you know unexpected. It didn't. It was blind. It blind violence. It had nothing to do with anything else. It just he was just run over by a beer truck. It was bad news. Actually, actually, what he was doing was he was trying to. As I said, he was trying to get the American people not to burn down the country. You know, in response to this killing, because the killing was not a blind, violent act. In fact. If you go look in our archives, our national archives, you will read, as I did, that our government investigated this assassination many years after it happened and concluded it was a conspiracy, very likely a conspiracy. Now, when you have blind violence on the one hand and conspiracy on the other, that's a big gap, right? A happenstance or a plan. And this was a plan. So here's our president, the leader of our country, standing up in front of all the people, all of us, and telling us a story that was a lie. I think if our leaders told us the truth, there'd be a lot less burden and looting. You know, what what are you going to do when your leadership, you know, BSs you every chance they get? You know, people are going to get disenfranchised, let's say. They're going to get upset because they know their leadership is not treating them as adults, not talking to them as adults, not dealing with them as adults, is treating them like little children or even worse, as subhumans, which is why I like to play Oscar Peterson. You want to treat Oscar Peterson like a subhuman, huh? Henry Ford, Adolf Hitler, would you kill Oscar Peterson? And of course, the answer is, yes, he would. Yes, he would. And that's not to say that that's a good example. Because killing anybody, if a guy can't even tie his shoes, that's not a reason to kill him. If we have a sanctity of life bedrock in our society. But see, see, since we took out that cornerstone, hey, killing people is not a big deal. I want to just go back for a minute. And, you know, you're getting used to me. I'm not very linear. I know it pisses some people off. But I try to bring it back around the corner over time. This is really sticking in my craw that we're living in a society that is humanist, and we the people don't even know what it means. In fact, it's the opposite of we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. You know, this is, we've gotten, we've gotten away from our roots here, right? Let's, let's just go back, and you know, we, have, we, we have a lot talking about this all men are created equal thing. Okay, what was the environment within which the founders were writing these documents? 
We were th- these people were living in a world with kings and queens, the divine right of kings, and the uh, unholy alliance between the church and the royal families that put in place a power structure that had generated the business model of slavery, drugs, and piracy. So what they were saying was that this king thing, you know, these people put their pants on one pant leg at a time like everybody else. There's, you know, they were undermining this, this constitution, this declaration of independence was set up to undermine the idea that we the people are ruled by a ruler who has a divine right. You know, this, this stuff is uh, complicated and has to be looked at. What was the street corner like in 1776? We got a king, George, who is, you know, a dictator. And then we've got the people, and we just want to self-govern. It was a big spread, and they established for us an entire system of Republican government that allows for independence, self-governance. It allows me to think what I want to think, say what I want to say, assemble with who I want to assemble. And, you know, a more eloquent idea is not to be found in the annals of human history this idea that you and I are living in. We're sharing this and we take it so for granted. And as it, as its benefits are being removed from us step by step, you know, we're going to look up one day and we're going to go, Oh, I remember when I remember this, I remember that. And then the memories are going to get extinguished because people die off. So unless our generations, the, the people that are alive right now, dig in, and understand our traditions and our our history and the brilliance that it spawned, the freedom that Oscar Peterson had in his heart to play that kind of improvisational jazz, that freedom, that creativity, that's what they want to preclude. See, what we're doing with socialism and communism is we're precluding the risk that comes with independence and freedom. But that's what created Oscar Peterson. That is what created Oscar Peterson. You remember we were talking about Shostakovich. He got in trouble with Stalin, and he was worried about getting arrested. And his art, his creativity was so great, they couldn't contain him. And that's really what's going to happen here. Uh, as long as there's humanity... As long as there is the potential for creativity uh, and independence and freedom, that potential stands in stark contrast and antagonism to the idea of empire, you know, which was the divine right of kings at the time of 1776. And today, it's the post-World War II Democrat liberal order. So we, we're trying to sort this out together and I didn't really ask you, how are you doing today? I'm better today, can you tell? I was dark, really dark when I did the last podcast. You know, I the darkness is still there. And, you know, it's just so dark that I'm going to be up because 
I believe in this movement. I believe in the American people. I believe it's our only hope is we the people. So there's hundreds of people watching this, and I appreciate it, and I thank you for joining. But if you're watching this podcast, and I, I hope I'm entertaining, and I try from time to time to be humorous, and I'm working on my presentation and my ideas, and you, you, I know if you're watching me regularly, you're seeing me trying to up my game. But the game I'm really trying to up here is our game so that we're sending this podcast out we're activating people politically that we're understanding, particularly from this debt thing we're going through, this debt ceiling thing. Hey, it's up to us. There's no cavalry coming. We are living in, well, as I was saying, it's, it's an unprecedented period when a, a sinner like me can take a look out at uh, prophecy, which, uh, you know, I... I, I just have to be be frank about this. I've put a lot of my life energy into reading the Bible, uh, both in its original language and uh, the new language. <clears throat> that would be English. And um, I've read the Old Testament and the New Testament. And a lot of times I'll tell people, you know, if you've if you got a problem, just go read Mark a thousand times because there's a whole system of healing and well-being that is encapsulated in Mark and Matthew. And you can understand it. And if you're, if you're suffering from a chronic disease and you're fed up and you just really are ready to let go and let God, just read Mark a, a thousand times. See what comes up for you. Because there's a complete system of, of, uh, of a healing in that, in that book. And uh, we need to discover things like that. And when it came to Revelation, I just could never read it. I mean, I, I, I bumped up against it, and I read the first few pages. This goes back. I mean, I think I had my first trip on this about, oh, I don't know, 78. So, I mean, I've been trying to read this my entire life, and the reason I couldn't read it is twofold. It was so allegorical, uh, so poetic, that I just couldn't understand it. And when I would go read people's you know, explanation of it, I figured, okay, it's good, it's a nice story, but how do we know? Because I'm one of those people I like to see it for myself. That's why I'm always urging you, you got to see it for yourself. You, you know, if we're going to self-govern, self-govern, it doesn't mean that we don't listen to other people. It doesn't mean that I'm not informed by other people because I take in all kinds of ideas, but ultimately, it's it's me. It's what I think for me. I know that sounds rather narcissistic to some of the people that are out there, and I always like to say, it's not bragging if it's true, okay? I mean, there's narcissism, and then there's just being right, and I like to, to search for truth and try to get it right. And, uh, you know, I fail a lot, and I fall down, and I get up, and that's just the way, that's just the, way the game is played in, in the Professor Penn world. But uh, I could never get my, my brain around this revelation thing. I mean, I went so far as to say, and I still could say it, who put it in the book? I mean, what kind of info war is in there? And I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. I'm just saying, if there's an info war, how far and when did it start? I, I'll give you an anecdote. I may have said this on a previous podcast, 
But it's an interesting anecdote. You know, the original, the Old Testament, it's called the Five Books of Moses. It's written in Hebrew, and it's contained in scrolls. So if you go to a synagogue anywhere in the world, there's a scroll there. It's called a Torah. It's the original, the Old Testament written out in its original language. And some of these scrolls are old. I mean, really old. They're priceless old. But you got to make new ones because they fall apart. And so they have to refresh the stock. And there's a big emphasis placed on absolutely reproducing the new scroll exactly like the old scroll because in the camp, around the campfire, the word is that's the actual word of God. So you don't want to mess with that, right? It's the word of God. God scribed this down. And I remember as a young man, I was very fortunate to participate in the creation of a new scroll. And I was going to actually scribe in the letters in the scroll. You know, it wasn't a big deal. There was a lot of us. I was young. It was a chance to kind of uh, enculturate us into the tradition. It's a kind of a brainwashing deal, right? I mean, really, there's a lot of that that goes on when you're in a secret society. And I got this big opportunity to scribe in my part of the scribing. And I did it, did a nice job, and I said to the guy in charge of the scribing, you know, I just did this perfectly, but what would have stopped me from writing anything in here I wanted to and changing the whole nature of this thing? Oh, that was not met with a happy response. They didn't like that. That actually stepped on some toes, because what I was saying was, where's the QC on this book? Okay, they didn't like to hear that from 11-year-olds. Just shut up and scribe. Bang, boom, slap. You know, they don't like that. So I, I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. I'm not trying to get anybody's theology. I'm just saying it occurred to me at a very young age that where's the QC on these books? Who's making the decision about what goes in the book and what's outside of the book? Now, I've digressed for 24 minutes and never got to my script. So we're never going to get through today's material. I don't know why I did this. My point is, I'm trying to make a point. Okay, I do know why I did it. Excuse me. My point is, I could never get my arms around Revelation because I didn't know why it was in there. It's very dark, and it's very prophetic about what's going to happen. Okay, it's, it's saying this is going to happen. And I don't like that. I like to believe that I have human agency and that I have a say in my future. I know it's a little bit like the Matrix, that, that scene. I'm going to play it next time. Tanner, remember, remind me. we got to pay, play that scene where uh, Neo says he, he rejects predeterminism. That's very important. We're going to get that one out there. Because I, 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 long before I saw the Matrix, I rejected it. And this could be vanity and narcissism. I recognize that. We've got these two poles working, yin and yang. Got to be aware of both sides of the equation. That's why I like algebra. But I, I realized, and I, I presented this, that these horses, these horsemen, the seal broke. You know, we had World War II. It was a humongous loss of faith. 
I don't like the word humongous. I'm not going to use it anymore. Doesn't sound good. Let's kill that word. It was a loss of faith on a planetary scale because human beings could not get their minds around 88 million people dying in five years. It was such a horrible bloodletting that people gave up, particularly, for example, in some of the secret societies like the Jewish community. I mean, the people just gave up, a big percentage of them, a big percentage. I don't know the exact percentage. I'm not a sociologist, but having grown up there, I'm just going to tell you people had to make a decision. Now, think about this. There's 12 million of you going in and only 6 million of you coming out. That means everybody lost somebody, right? Or lost a lot of people. You know, 50% of the population got clipped. That's a, you know, like you go to the doctor and the doctor says to you, hey, I got some good news and some bad news. The bad news is you got a 50% chance of dying. The good news is you got a 50% chance of living. When you hear something like that, you're going to have anxiety, right? Right now, most of the people listening to this figure, I got a 100% chance of being here tomorrow. But if we were in Nazi Germany in, I don't know, 38, uh, we didn't have a good chance of being here tomorrow. Odds were low. So people had to make decisions because that kind of brutality, that kind of unleashed humanism, that kind of unleashed eugenics, I called it a eugenics wet dream. I like that. They got to live out their wet dream. They got to liquidate their undesirable populations. And it was not just the Jewish community. It was the gypsies. It was homosexuals. It was communists, trade unionists, the Russians, the Pol I mean, these people, I mean, we're talking about savagery now. Industrial killing. Not like Leslie. Uh, it's not Leslie. Excuse me. Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham called the war in uh, Ukraine that Putin's war crimes were industrial level. No, they are not. Industrial level is, you know, rounding up millions of people and liquidating them and burning their bodies. That's industrial. And people went through that experience and they lost their faith. I mean, they just lost their faith. I mean, how could God let these, what they called Nazis, but they were secular, they were secular humanists is what they were. Nazism was their political strategy. Their religion was humanism. They were into positive eugenics. They were out of that British intellectual tradition of Darwin and Galton and Spencer. They loved these people. It caught on big time in Germany. It fit their model of colonialism and piracy and slavery. And they loved it. And they lived it out. And the people that suffered it said, whoa, whoa, wait a second. How is this possible? How could a loving God allow this kind of mass murder? And they lost their faith. In fact, not only did they lose their faith, but a lot of them threw in with the humanists. And if you think about that, forget about all the intellectualizing. You know, if you're really afraid of getting killed, one of the ways to avoid it is to join the enemy. And that's what a lot of people did. And I can speak to this, okay, because I understand how it went down. I lived through this period. People actually had to figure it out. I did. I had to figure it out. What side of the football was I going to play on here? So when I, when I read this uh, 
Revelations now and look at it, and I can recognize that the loss of faith was the underpinnings for these seals being broken because they broke. They broke. We broke it. We humans gave up our faith. And the first one that came out, which we're going to talk about today if we get to it, was the white horse. The white horse. What was white horse? Well, it's right in the book. It's, it's conquest. And what is the conquest? The conquest is humanism, the end of the Judeo-Christian experience, coming to an end. It we Really, one could say, and I've said this before, that the Nazis were completely successful in their political goals. Their goal was to institute humanism, positive eugenics and negative eugenics, to evolve the human species. These folks were into human agency, evolving Homo sapiens, and they were very successful at it. They actually broke the faith or broke the back of the religious throughout the world. Look at our church attendance in this country, in Europe. In Europe, I mean, there's almost nothing left. So they, they, they were really, I mean, we like to tell ourselves a story that we won. What did we win? We didn't win. It's like winning in the Ukraine in the Midwest. If we win over there, we lose. That's what happened. We won the war. Well, we won the battle, but we really lost the war. Let's say it like that. We won the battle of World War II. When I say we, I mean the United States of America and our United Nations. That's what President Roosevelt called the countries that were allied with the United States and Great Britain and Russia against the Axis powers in World War II. They called themselves the United Nations. And that United Nations was born right after the war, was a key aim of the, of the war, of the, of the powers that were in United, the United Nations, a key aim was to form an organization after the war ended. And they actually were called during the war the United Nations. And what did they want? They wanted complete, total victory over the Axis powers. There was no negotiations. They weren't going to leave them in anything. They were going to leave them nothing. They were going to take everything away from them. That would be the Empire of Japan and Benito Mussolini in Italy and Nazi Germany. They were going to completely destroy these people's institutions. And they, they succeeded in doing it, allegedly. But that white horse of conquest, that is the conquest of humanism, which we're living in. And the United Nations was established as the forum for advancing this conquest. And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to bookmark that. We're going to come back to it. Let's remember. But then there was a second seal we talked about, the red horse. That's called war. Well, what is that? Well, we said it's, it's liberalism. It's an ism. It's an ism, just like globalism is an ism. What are isms? Political strategies. They're political strategies. And there's all kinds of them. So that second seal was that red horse. That's, you know, the post-World War II Democrat liberal order. That's institutions like 
NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. We see how great they're doing over there in the Ukraine right now. It's about war. War. Can't have conquest without war. Those two work together like hand and glove, don't they? Then the third seal, the black horse, famine. Well, communism, another strategy, which we're going to talk about in a minute because, boy, we're heading towards communism in the United States of America at full speed. And, you know, again, most people don't know it. Yeah, I guess they don't read. Oh, they read the newspaper and they believe it. Or they read the Wall Street Journal and they believe it. You know, propaganda. There's always been propaganda. All new, this show is propaganda. Propaganda. Everybody's got a perspective. Now, how many people are going to look at you and, you, and are going to say, I don't know what the truth is, but I'm trying to discover it with you, and let's get as close to it as we can. Let's not make proclamations of certainty. Let's always leave a little uncertainty because we can always get better. An anecdote. You know, there's all this talk of black belts. You know, black's a contrast, not a color. You can't get blacker. Black is black, okay? I mean, real black is black. Can't get more black than black. So what a guy has when he has a black belt on, he said, oh, I'm a master. I've got this figured out. You know, there are certain traditions that say, nah, there's no black belts. How about midnight blue? Because you can always get blacker in midnight blue. You can always get deeper. It leaves you a little room to grow. Something to think about for all the people that are sure they know what the answer is. I don't have that kind of surety. Because we're living in a dynamic world of change. What's right today is not going to be right tomorrow. That's the difference between activity and productivity. We're all involved in politics. Let us be sure that our political activity is productive and not just active. Because we're not doing this to make friends. We're doing this to protect the lives of our children. That's why we're doing it. Communism. We're going to talk about it. Related right to this debt ceiling drama. Going to come right back to it in just a few seconds. And the final seal, the pale horse, which is death. Well, we know what that is. That's scientism. That's the World Health Organization. That's the business model of slavery, drugs, and piracy. The drug part, where 60% of American citizens have a chronic disease, okay? And we're spending 20% of our total country's output on alleged health care. 20%, trillion, $5 trillion a year is going into this. Now, come on. For $4 trillion, you'd think you could live forever, wouldn't you? I mean, really, $4 trillion year after? And that's what they're telling us they're coming up with, life extension. But actually, our life expectancy is getting shorter. So they're pitching life extension, but we're dying quicker. There's a scam going on here. We need to look at it. We're going to be delving into this. As I said, the Professor Penn podcast, we're moving into a new phase here. We've laid the predicate that we're in a new religion. Now let's see how these people are operationalizing this new religion. And that's why I'm so interested in Revelations, because it's written down. Now I'm just taking the allegory and I'm interpreting it for myself. It doesn't mean I'm right. It means I got a version of the truth. But it does line up kind of nicely, doesn't it? Kind of scary that I can I scare myself. Maybe I'm scaring you too. I kind of want to scare you. I do. I, I want to cop to it. Because, you know, again, when you're scared, when you're scared, you can 
make a stand, you can run away, or you can freeze. And my theory is here, freezing and running away is not going to work in a globalized, you know, program. We're in a globalized program of a new religion, and nobody gets to run away from this thing. I don't think you can go to the farthest, most remote, remote corner of the earth and escape these people because they're eugenicists. They don't want to leave one little strand of DNA around that may creep up and create an Oscar Peterson. They want to make sure that doesn't happen because that means there's freedom afoot. And these people don't like freedom. It's freedom for them, but not for us. Okay, it's like communism for us, but not for them. There's just a handful of them. We're going to start. We've been calling them out. Henry Ford. Hey, you know, he's been dead a long time, right? But his influence, some of you are driving Fords, aren't you? The pale horse, death, scientism. So we've got these seals that started breaking. What is a seal? A seal holds... A seal contains something from spilling out into the world. Well, what broke the seal, really got this process going, was World War II, because people gave up their faith. It's our faith, individually, which holds back this torrent and flood of evil. So my goal in my own life, I just want to give up my addiction to sin. It's kind of an honest thing to say to you. Okay, you're looking at me and you're thinking, I hope, how do you sin? What sins are you addicted to? I'm not asking you to tell me. I'm asking you to do an inventory in your own head. What sins are you addicted to? And I, I look at it for myself and I go, okay, I could be putting my time in doing things that are really good and true. Or I could be putting my time into wasting my time. No, I'm going to be very frank. Well, I'll tell us another story. I've got, you know, a very significant person in my life. She has uh, acid reflux. It's terrible. It's terrible for her. And uh, she's pretty young, friend of mine. And she has uh, erosions in her esophagus from this. And, you know, she's taking some drugs and the erosions are going to heal. In her mind... She just wants to get back to eating that hot sauce, that hot food, as quick as she can because she thinks it's her right to consume spicy hot food. She loves it. She's addicted to it. She gets an endorphin rush from having that real hot food. Unfortunately for her, her body can't handle it. But she wants to get back to it as quick as she can, as quick as she can. So the drugs are not about really healing her. It's really about just setting up the conditions where she can defile herself yet again. How many of us are caught on that, that wheel? I mean, uh, pretty much all of us, right? I mean, come on. So I, I'm really going to work on this because this is a well-being issue. My well-being is enhanced to the extent that I can stay focused on my well-being. Instead of saying, oh, my well-being is an opportunity for me to defile myself, which is, you know, the Chinese model. That's what I said. you got to smoke with these people. Otherwise, you're precluding them the opportunity to prove to you how well they are. That's why we smoke and drink. It's kind of weird, isn't it? So we broke these, you know, we, we let these seals break because we gave up our individual faith. 
I have a, an action plan, a productive plan. If we, the American citizens, give up our addiction to doing the wrong things, it may have a, a giant effect in the world. Why don't we try it? Because we're getting down to a, a handful of cards that are left for us to play. We don't have that many cards left. We're running out of cards. And one of the strongest cards that we're holding back, I hate to use this, but it's hilarious, could be a trump card, is let's just do the right thing in our personal lives. Tell the truth. Learn how to talk to people in a way that they can listen. Listen to other people. Do good. Spread good. Maybe if we start to really focus on this as a community, it'll have an unforeseen effect. Because really, we're, we're really operating quite the contrary. Quite the contrary. The debt ceiling drama is a perfect example of this. Uh, the debt ceiling drama. You know, our government, that would be the uni party. There isn't two parties. To all my Republican activist friends in Minnesota, give it up. There is no Republican party. You know, I have to agree with Alexander Dugan. It's almost like agreeing with George Wallace. I have to laugh at myself. But there's no conservative party here in the United States. It doesn't exist. It's a fugazi. Those of us that are participating in the Republican Party because we want to conserve something just need to look at what's going on on this debt ceiling deal. Look at it. And let's be honest about it. In the party. I mean, if you really are objecting to all these things that are going on in our society right now today, because if you're Democrat and you're watching me, you might be down with a lot of this stuff. And you're just watching me like a lab rat. And that's okay. I know some of you are watching me like a lab rat. And, you know, and I'm coming. And I have to. Because what I think, it's not personal. I don't dislike anybody. I just think these things are very clear to me. And I think they're not contributing to the well-being of the American people. And because I'm concerned only about the well-being of the people and dedicated to the well-being of the people, not my pocketbook, not some global idea conquest, not some grand eugenicist idea that I personally am going to evolve humanity, like these mass-murdering sons of bitches, okay? They believe that they're going to evolve humanity because to them there's no God. It's their job. Great. Super. I, You know, you got a perspective. You're over there on your street corner, and I have to take the other side and say, I don't trust you people, okay? I don't trust you, period. And I have evidence. It would be called World War II, 88 million people. So that's not that long ago. And these people that are following along in this tradition, they're in this tradi this humanist tradition. They're there. They're getting ready to do this again. I see it. And the debt ceiling drama. For all of my uh, Republican friends, come on. The whole country is in on this. Why? Because nobody wants the music to stop. I mean, we all know. You know we're broke. You know this is a BS story. You know it. And, you know, some of you are on Social Security. Others are on Medicare. Some people are on this program. Some people are on that program. There's a program for everybody, okay? And when you spend $6 bucks a year, hey, everybody's in on it. Everybody's getting a benefit, okay? 
They're buying everybody. And you know what? We're all down with it because the conservative party, the people that are supposed to take the other street corner, <laughs> they're really not taking. They're actually over on the other corner with the communists. Yes, communists. They're communists. And they've just given these communists an unlimited It's It's worse than originally came out. Originally, it looked like $4 trillion more to put on the check on the, on the credit card. You know, we have a baked-in $1 trillion deficit. So in a two-year period, they were really offering the Biden administration. That would be the Republicans who are in charge of the, ho- the House. Remember the People's House? The representatives that are the closest to me and you, the people that are supposed to represent the people, they just gave consensually. Nobody had to fight them. It looked like $2 trillion extra dollars, okay? But now it turns out there's no limit on it. And I got a theory about why they did this. And the theory I have is, number one, they're spineless. No creativity. And we elected them. We, the people, elected these representatives. So ultimately, it's our responsibility. There's a punchline in this. The way to fix this? get involved in politics and let's clean the party out and let's clean these people out because they are surely communists. Now they may not see themselves as communists. That would be because they're dumb. Okay. And I always say this, some may be dumb. Some may be malevolent. Some may have good intentions in mind. What do they say? The path to hell is paved with good intentions. That's why I'm advocating for truth commissions. I don't want to hang these people. Get that out of your mind. We don't want to hang them because if we hang them, there's no incentive for them to tell the truth. In fact, we're incentivizing them to blow everything up. Let's not do that. Let's let them come in and tell us all about it in exchange for their freedom. I would like to know what they're thinking when they give the Biden administration that has just spent what we know of. We don't know what we don't know. What we know is a couple hundred billion dollars arming the Ukrainians to be a hammer to destroy the Russian Federation. And as I've said over and over again, what benefit does that bring me? Zero. There's no benefit to me. But two trillion. They got a checkbook, and it's on, now it turns out it's unlimited. What do you think they're going to do with that money? What do you think they How do you think they convinced the Republican leadership to abandon their base and make us all feel worthless and stupid for electing them, for even being involved in the party. I mean, there's going to be people that say we're done. They're going to quit. This is going to a little bit like the Jewish people that quit believing in God after World War II. They just quit. They joined the other side. They became secular humanists. Hey, there's no God. I'm going to go play on the other side where there's benefits. How many people in the conservative movement or in the America movement are going to say, I give, I'm done, flip off the TV, and just, you know, submit? And this is all part of the process, getting us to give up. This is about getting us to give up. But there's a very practical part to this. They have an unlimited checkbook now, unlimited to go attack the Russians. That would be, be 
that would be called the white horse. Conquest and the red horse war working in concert to subdue the world for the new religion. They're not going to allow any dissent. Everybody's getting on the same page. That's called conquest. So this debt ceiling thing is uh, horrifying, a horrifying uh, moment in American history where we as political activists, we have to understand. We have to understand who's running the show. Tanner, can you play this little bit on the United Nations? Who's running the show? Nations. Momentous opening words of a great charter for world peace. At San Francisco, 200 men and women of 50 nations labored to build an organization that will outlaw war for all time. President Truman attends the last session of this conference, which the whole world has anxiously watched. The president meets many famous guests, among them General Smuts, who is a delegate to that other peace conference at Versailles, and Admiral Nimitz, under whose command British and American ships are hammering at the door to Japan. At the famous opera house, the assembled delegates hear a call for their final vote from the chief of the British delegation, Lord Halifax. And it is now my duty, my honor and my privilege in the chair to call for a vote on the approval of the Charter of the United Nations. Nation by nation, the delegates cast their votes. 50 peoples pledged to peace. Now the final signing of the Charter for Britain, Lord Halifax. Edward Stettinius, Chief of America's delegation to the World Security Council. For the third Big Three partner, Mr. Gromyko, Ambassador to Washington. For China, first nation to be attacked, Dr. Wellington Koo paints his signature. The Charter of Mankind's Deepest Hopes. Humanity demands that this be the Magna Carta of lasting peace. Final speech of the conference was given in characteristic spirit by President Truman. If we had had this charter a few years ago, and above all, the will to use it, millions now dead would be alive. If we should falter in the future in our will to use it, millions now living will surely die. Now there's a time for making plans. And there's a time for action. The time for action is here now. The Allied world salutes the spokesmen of nations which stand for peace. San Francisco has made a beginning, a courageous stand that promises to build a mighty structure for peace, a charter born of the agony and destruction of total war. It must mark a turning point in human history. A new way reaches to the future. The world must follow it through unity and cooperation to lasting peace. Whoa, well, we go back and we look at the roots of this thing. We talked about it was uh, the League of Nations, uh, which was uh, the recommendation of uh, what was called the Inquiry. Remember the Inquiry? The group of 150 European-influenced and European scholars that were teaching in our universities, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Columbia, that came together under President Wilson, 
during the World War I period, and they laid out this predicate for this new international organization, which was originally called the League of Nations, which, of course, went defunct because uh, <laughs> the Axis didn't like it. They wanted their own uh, league. And, uh, you know, the United Nations came together and fought the Axis powers and uh, the inquiry, this 150 scholars, their idea for world governance. World governance. The United Nations were the, the armies and the, uh, the countries that were fighting against Germany and Japan and Italy and their allies, like the Ukrainians, allied with the Germans, the Serbians allied with the Germans, the Finns, allied with the Germans. You know, it wasn't, it, it was a mixed bag. It wasn't as clear as our textbooks like to tell us. Everybody took a side. And uh, the inquiry, you know, that came out of our British European intellectual tradition, this idea of global governance. That's empire, okay? You can't have global governance without an empire. And who was in the empire? That'd be the British crown. You see, this is why I started out with that, that uh, beautiful bit, All Men Are Created, and I, I said, well, what were they talking about? They weren't talking about issues of race. They were saying, who are these kings? What's this king stuff all about? These people are people. They die, you know? They don't, they're not immortals but their families had become immortal and they were controlling all the money. So they wanted to break that up. They wanted their piece of the action. Self-governance was what they set up in our country. It was a juxtaposition and an antagonism to empire. Yet, the crown, in its brilliance, infected, invaded, uh, occupied our elite institutions, and convinced Americans to build a new empire, which they called the United Nations. It's a pretty good move, very stealthy. I have to respect manipulation and evil at this level. It's so good that it's very hard to see. But see, now as they're coming into full power, I mean, you know, for me saying I figured it out, come on, at this point, you know, when you get hit in the head, it's pretty hard to say, you know, you missed it because this thing is a slap in the face now. And I'm going to say I've been watching this my whole life, and uh, probably you have too. I mean, there was the John Birch Society. I mean, there, there's the, the antagonism or the, the, the calling out of this sentiment, this empire sentiment, it goes back to the beginning of uh, the Wilsonian period. People were screaming about it but they were like voices in the wilderness, like John the Baptist. Nobody was paying attention. And you know what's interesting? Still no one is paying attention. I mean, you and I are talking today, and we got our valiant group of Spartans that are getting together here. But generally speaking, people don't care. They don't care because they don't understand. Or they don't care because they just want to take the money. But that's what's beautiful about this debt ceiling deal. All the people that want to take the money, if you have any friends that have any money, even a little bit, a couple hundred thousand, it's going to get taken away from them. Okay, so now we're going to have a new constituency that's going to come. 
Because all these people that are, they think they're, you know, in on the spoils because they've saved a little bit of money. I don't know, 20, 30 million. Hey, they're going to take it. for. If you're watching me and you got a net worth of 20 million and you want the status quo to continue, you're here because it's kind of a, some kind of psychological process because you really don't want the status quo to fall apart because you're a beneficiary of the status quo. Hey, guess what? They're going to take every last damn dime you got. Then what you're going to do when you're poor? Because this kind of debt ceiling deal is going to make everybody poor. You can't control inflation and keep printing money like this. You're going to have inflation when you keep expanding the money supply. So what they're going to do is continue to have a high interest rate environment, which is going to make the servicing of this debt the only thing we do. It's going to make the entire country poor, except for the two status quo benefits, the military-industrial complex and the medical-industrial complex. Everybody agrees on that. Really? Are we going to really agree on that? Our life expectancy is getting shorter, and we're on the and our business model is about killing people. Do you want to live in that stew pot? I don't, and I'm asking you to help me change it. But let me tell you how sophisticated this stuff is. Preamble: We, the peoples of the United Nations, determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to, man, sorrow to mankind, and to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and worth of the human person, in the equal rights of men and women and of nations large and small, and to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained. And to, promote, and to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. And for these ends to practice tolerance and live together in peace with one another as good neighbors and to unite our strength to maintain international peace and security and to ensure, and it just goes on and on. Sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? It really sounds great. There's a problem. There's a fundamental problem in this. Very simple problem. Self-government and United Nations are in juxtaposition and antagonism to each other. This was an affront to the very formation of our governance. And this was a Democrat idea. That's why they call it the post-World War II Democrat liberal order. Because the Republican form of governance, of national sovereignty, of nationalism, is against this idea of one world governance. And we've just let this thing grow up. We, the, the boomer generation, and the post-World War II generations, we've just lost any flavor of our nation. We've lost it. We're no longer a nation. We're part of the United Nations. We've already lost this country. The humanists have won. Now we're into the containment and cleanup phase of their operation. So, I, you know, the answer to this is my personal conduct. First of all, I have to dedicate myself to God, country, and family. It's not a kidding around thing now. I don't dislike any of these people. 
I don't know if they were malevolent or dumb. Some of them are just dumb. They just don't read. They don't care about the Constitution of the United States. They've never thought about it philosophically. That's okay. We'll just bring it to their attention. I'm just going to keep reading that preamble to the Declaration of Independence until it spreads throughout all of the parties and we start to reconsider what is the, what is the, the world w- that our founding fathers made for us. Do we want to live <clears throat> in world governance and give up our human freedom and dignity? In exchange for peace. That's what they're selling us. They're saying in exchange for peace, we have to give up our self-governance. But it's a bullshit deal because there's no peace. This is war, everywhere war. So what they're selling, the product they're selling doesn't work. That's number one. I mean, really, if it was really peaceful, I mean, really peaceful, Maybe it'd be a good deal. Maybe we would institute a new governance. Because remember in that preamble, it says that, you know, men come together to form governance to achieve these ends, these, these natural rights. We constitute government, government governance, and the gov- government derives its authority from the consent of the governed. Well, this group, they don't care about our consent at all because they've gotten the government so far away from we the people that it's a complete disconnect. And that's why we tend to look at what's going on and go, what? I'm going to have to say, come on, we're going to be $36 trillion in debt in two years. Let's just tell it like it is. We're going to go bankrupt, and that's the point of the whole exercise. But before we go bankrupt as a country, they want to make sure that every last dime that you have in your bank account goes into the casino and gets skimmed in the count room. They don't want to leave us with anything. A very small handful of people want it all for themselves. Our rulers, our new kings and queens. And guess what they have in this United Nations? They have Article 44, the famous Article 44 and 45. When the Security Council has decided to use force, it shall, before calling upon a member not represented on it to provide certain forces in fulfillment of the obligations assumed under Article 43, if the member so desires to participate in the decisions of the Security Council concerning the employment of contingents of that member's armed forces, in order to enable the United Nations to take urgent, this is Article 45, to take urgent military measures. Members shall hold immediately available national Air Force contingents for combined international enforcement action. The strength and degree of readiness of these contingents and plans for their combined action shall be determined within the limits laid down in the special agreement or agreements referred to in Article 43. Oh, Article 43. All members of the United Nations, in order to contribute to the maintenance of international peace and security, undertake to make available to the Security Council on its call and in accordance with a special arrangement or agreements, armed forces, assistance and facilities, including rights of passage necessary for the purpose of maintaining international peace and security. So these folks are the arbiters of what peace and security look like, and they have the 
authority to marshal world governance and world armies to enforce their will. And we signed this. And they're just, you know, they've been working on closing this trap for decades. They weren't in a hurry. You know, a good plan, a good meal takes time to cook. I mean, right now, if they had tried to do what they're doing right now in 1950, they never got it done. They've had to dumb us down for decades. And that preamble of the, of the United Nations Charter is so beautiful. I mean, for the people of my generation, I mean, we view the United Nations very positively because we had suffered the scourge of two world wars. And uh, we, really, we really believed in, uh, you know, the United Nations was the arbiters of peace. That would be called brainwashing. They did an excellent job. You know, the Huxleys that were really involved in the formation of this organization, they knew what they were doing. They're dead. We can't get them in front of the Truth Commission. But if they were alive, they'd come in and say, yes, we were implementing a new religion of eugenics because uh, we didn't uh, believe in this God thing. I mean, there's no God. We're God. Oh, really? <laughs> Boy, I thought we'd been through this before. Now, you wonder what I'm paging through here while I'm talking to you. I'm paging through the articles of the uh, United Nations. It's a good read. Probably take you a while to read it. I suggest you do. It's really, an, it's, it's long. You see, I'm paging and paging. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, real great nuggets in here. In other words, we don't have a United States of America. We're living in the United Nations. Okay, does that explain some things for you? Because it's about equality. That means all the prosperity and freedom that our form of Republican government governance had bestowed upon the people, that's all got to go away because it's about the equality of the people. Okay? All men are created equal. Changed over time. Kind of like hijacking the word equity or hijacking the word welfare or hijacking the word redemption. These are professors. They're good at this. Very, very good. So how are we going to go about this? I mean, the United Nations really still has good, you know, it really still has good PR. I mean, most people think of it as an indispensable world institution. And it may be indispensable as a world institution if we could get people with sacred honor in there. Unfortunately, we probably can't because all the people that come up through this system, they went to Columbia University and they hate God because they think God's the problem, right? So we got a big spread here between these two street corners, the God street corner and the anti-God. Oh, that'd be the Antichrist street corner. Let's just call it for what it is. It's the Antichrist street corner. Now, they don't see themselves as Antichrist, but they're Antichrist. That's who they are. That's what they are. And that's the sum total of everything they're doing. They might explain some of this bizarre behavior we're seeing on the television. You know, it's pretty anti-traditional. It's not even good for the well-being of the people that are doing it. But these folks don't care about the well-being of the people. They think well-being is a genetic accident. They think if they evolve the genome of the human species, well-being or unwellness is no longer an issue because that's a genetic issue. That's a materialist issue. It has nothing to do with the world of the spirit. That's their orientation. It's just my, it's not my orientation. Kind of takes the fun out of it, doesn't it? I mean, my gosh, if I was put into a machine, my consciousness, where I was going to live forever, 
and whatever I did was okay, it's kind of a strange, you know, the first thing I'd probably do is clip out my enemies. I mean, I can live forever and they can't. Is that the world we're heading towards? Yes, it is. Scary, isn't it? That's why they put this in Revelation. It's supposed to be scary. It is scary. What are we going to do? Well, what I'm going to do personally is I'm going to up my game for my own personal well-being and for my own just trying to be a good person. Join me in that. Because, you know, if, if a benefit for being a, an American is, is health and wellness and being good, that's a good political, that's a good political plank. If you join with us, you'll be well. It'll be well with you. Oh, I like that. It might take a little work. You might have to work on yourself. But guess what? It's a right granted to you by a creator. You don't have to ask the government to work on being a better person. You just have to ask yourself to do it. Oh, what a great idea. But we also have to go to work on some of these uh, elected leaders. We elect these people, and they get a pass. Like Kevin McCarthy. Like the people in the Minnesota GOP that support uh, the Democrat agenda by giving them an unlimited checkbook. I'm going to go to my next meeting, and I'm going to say, who supported this? It's not personal. I don't dislike these people. They may not understand. Forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. Remember that one? If you never read it, you can go find it. Forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. There's a lot of that out there. There's. I want to be forgiven because I do make mistakes all the time. I don't know what I'm doing. So let's be kind and generous. But in here, we have the malevolent also. And it doesn't matter to me if they're dumb or malevolent or well-intentioned, just don't know what they're doing. They're all stripes in here that are like this. We're going to have to start picking them out one by one. Like Kevin McCarthy can no longer be Speaker of the House. He cannot lead the Republicans in the House and hand the Democrats an unlimited checkbook to do whatever the hell they want to do. Does that sound a little crazy to you? It doesn't sound like there's two parties. There's no opposition. There's no ten there's a show and tell story. But when the output comes out, there isn't really a negotiated settlement. There's the Democrat agenda. That would tell me there's no Republican Party. Could we be honest about it, Republicans? Do we want to be Democrats? And for the Democrats, hey, do you have grandchildren? Do you want to see your grandchildren live, or do you want to watch them die? Do you want everybody to be poor? Do you want to preclude all opportunities for personal advancement? I mean, you got to think about it. we got to talk about it very honestly. We know there's problems, okay? How are we going to solve these problems? What is our path to redemption? Is this working for us? I mean, really, do, do, are we going to make more Oscar Petersons, or is everybody just going to be a drone? Let's think this thing through, Democrats. Do you like jazz music? I do. I'd like to hear more of it. Some of these people, I, I, you know, I was, I was calling them Leslie Graham. I apologize, Leslie. Your name is Lindsay. Sometimes it's called a Freudian slip. I'm not going to delve into it. Unnecessary. But I was wrong, and I apologize. It's Senator Lindsey Graham, senator from South Carolina. And in the few minutes I have left, I'd like to react to him. 
Let's just play a little bit of his sine qua non piece of crazy. Leslie Graham, the best money we've ever spent. I want to react to it. Last time you do. How about you, sir? Thank you very much. Thanks, United States people of, of the United States for all big support. President Biden, bipartisan yes. support. Can you stop it? I have to say this again. The characters on his shirt, disturbing, very disturbing. It looks a little Nazi-esque to me. I mean, just having studied the runes and where the Nazi symbols came from, and people are going to say, hey, a rune's a rune. Okay, really? Please continue. And really, we thank you so much. Free or die. Free or die. Now you are free. Yes. And we will be. And the Russians are dying. So the best money we've ever spent. Thank you so much. No, it's, you know, we're on four, let's see, this is, it makes All life possible. Yeah. Yes, more than a thousand or so. Of, uh, some of the fight, and every is how to fight against, how to defend our people. Of our better selves in America. That there was a time in America that we were. <laughs> so you're very well. Yes. Turn them off. Okay, the best money we ever spent. I'm going to react about this here. Who is Leslie? Who is. Lindsey Graham. And there I go again. Who's Lindsey Graham? Well, he's a senator. And where did he come from? Well, he was born in 1955, July 9th. He's an American lawyer and he's a politician serving as the senior United States senator from South Carolina. And he got that seat in 2003. He's a member of the Republican Party. Uh, he started his career a long time ago. 1993 was when he was elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives. And he came up in South Carolina. And this guy's an interesting guy, okay? This guy spans a long period of time. Started his political career in 1993, and he's still actually quite active in 2023. That's a long run, okay? 30-year run. But where did he come from? What was the start in South Carolina? You know, he took over the seat in the Senate of one of the most noted and reviled racists in American political history, Senator Strom Thurmond. Somehow, Senator Thurmond resigned, retired, and Graham got his seat. There's a relationship there about that constituency that was electing Strom Thurmond and was electing Lindsey Graham. So Lindsey, he spanned a broad period of American history. Let's just take a little trip down memory lane and see where Mr. Graham comes from. Let's play this piece on Senator Thurmond. Governor Thurmond had states' rights slate. States' rights. The sullen revolt against President Truman reaches its climax. Can you stop it just for a sec? This states' rights thing. Very complicated issue. States' rights was very critical to self-governance, but it's also very critical to maintaining slavery and apartheid in America. Please continue. ...under the states' rights banner. Venerable Alfalfa Bill Murray comes out of retirement to join in the protest against the president's civil rights program. 
More than 6,000 flocked to the Rump Convention to select a presidential ticket. In the forefront of the move are Alabama and Mississippi delegates who bolted the Democratic National Convention at Philadelphia. Let's stop for a second. Now, these are Democrats, okay? All Democrats. They were called Dixiecrats. They're already pissed off at the Democrat Party. They were pissed off at Truman because the Democrats were figuring out, hey, we got a great constituency here in the black community. Let's get behind this civil rights thing. And these folks down south were not part of it. They didn't like it. Senator Strom Thurmond, oh, wow. He was a governor at the time. Let's listen to Senator Strom as he, Governor Strom, please continue. Southern states are represented in the uproarious session, which precedes the nomination of Governor Thurmond of South Carolina and fielding right of Mississippi as Stop. There he is on the left. You saw the stars and bars just in the last scene. They were playing Dixie. I mean, these, folk, these folks were, okay, barely part of the United States. They were part of the United States insofar as they could maintain their lily-white Protestantism, as uh, Governor Romney called it in the 1964 GOP convention. Let's let's continue here. Standard bearer. Governor Thurmond attacks the civil rights plank. It simply means that it's another effort on the part of the president to dominate the country by force and to put into effect these uncalled for and these damnable proposals he has recommended under the guise of so-called civil rights. And I tell you, the American people from one side or the other had, a, had better wake up and oppose such a program. And if they don't, the next thing will be a totalitarian state in these United States. A fourth party is born. A fourth party is born. There's Strom Thurmond. He was the senator. The Republicans say, you know, he flipped. Because as I said, these people got so pissed off at the Democrat Party they became Republicans, a Republicans. <laughs> look at this now. Look who we're. Look at this. We got to wake up. These. This. This is where Lindsey Graham made his bones. Is in this party in South Carolina. The same people that elected Strom Thurmond elected Lindsey Graham. So this guy spanned a wide period in American history because nobody calls uh, Lindsey a, a racist. But his constituency, when he started out, was racist. It's sidebar. So this is who he, where he came from. And uh, he, he became very, you know, he was a colonel in the U.S. military. So he'd already had a great deal of international experience. He was a lawyer, which means he was enculturated into the rule of law. This guy had all the, the, the inputs to turn him into a raging globalist which he in fact became. And we got a few things that we can prove to ourselves that that's who he is. Let's play this piece, I Miss George Bush, 24 seconds. It worked, it worked. George W. Bush made mistakes, but he did adjust. I blame Obama for ISIL, not Bush. I'm tired of beating on Bush. I miss George W. Bush. I wish you were president right now. We wouldn't be in this mess. I'm tired of dictators walking all over all right. us. I'm tired of siding with the Iranians and the Russians. Can you stop it, please? Oh, look at all those Republicans in the audience. They're so happy. They miss George Bush, too. They miss George Bush. 
any of you miss George Bush out there? Got us in, he, did, he was just following orders. Got us in two horrifying wars which have drained our country, killed hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people. And he misses George Bush. Come on. The guy presided over a disaster. If you can go back in your mind to 2001 and think about this country in 2001 and look at it today in 2023, we've watched our country fall apart in the last 20 years. And George Bush kicked the cornerstones out with the Patriot Act and with these wars. And this guy says, bring them back. Bring them back. I, li- I miss them. This tells you a lot about because there was nobody more internationalist, globalist, than George Bush. His daddy was globalist. He comes from the globalist wing of the Republican Party. Now, he acted like he was from down south, but actually his family was from the northeast. They just moved down there to get close to the cash. That'd be the oil business. And, uh, you know, uh, Graham was all in on this thing. And let's just play this piece just to let you know how anti-nationalist he is. Listen to him to talk about uh, Trump. I'm not banging Trump's drum. I'm just saying let's look who Graham is. Let's play this piece, Graham, anybody but Trump. Start at 40 seconds in. Let's cut to the chase. You have officially endorsed Ted Cruz. I'm on the Ted train, absolutely. It's not alike. Okay, which is a very interesting train for you to be aboard. <laughs> well, because... I started with 17 cars. I'm down to three. Well, you were actually, you were actually one of the cars, which is yeah, weird. Yeah, so well, that didn't last very long. You, you were an empty car, and then you got on the train now, Absolutely. which is, is a weird thing and to happen. Got but, blown but away this, by the This dawn. is why this is so interesting to have you here, because uh, if we can play this. Well, Ted was let's, my let's 15th choice. Yeah. If play. you kill Ted Cruz on the floor of the Senate, and the trial was in the Senate. Nobody could convict you. <laughs> so it's safe. To, it's safe to say that you are slash were slash are not a fan of Ted Cruz. It tells you everything you need to know about Donald Trump. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't understand. I don't understand this. You you really really well, really don't here. like you don't like Ted Cruz. I, I don't dislike Ted. Ted and I have a lot of differences. I'm getting better at this. So, uh... <laughs> you know what I feel? I feel like you guys are like a buddy cop movie. choice. What can I say? <laughs> One, he's not completely crazy. Good. Uh, he's so really partially crazy. Partially crazy. Well, hey, that works in Washington. <laughs> you got Bernie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, you can't not, say not fully crazy. Burning. Yeah, that's a tick. What else is a tick for him? What, <laughs> what turns you on about Cruz? Uh, that he's not Trump. That's yeah, that's good. All right, so let me just say, this is not about Trump. Trump has not been able to get, a, get out of his own way. This is about the ideas that Trump is bringing forward. And, you know, of course, his ideas are not perfect from my perspective. He's a politician. He's a man. We're not going to find anybody that is perfect. You know, that's that's not in the material realm. But Trump is, you know, for uh, end to end, he wanted to bring an end to the endless wars. He wanted to reindustrialize America. He was moving away from the globalist institutions. He was very suspicious of the United Nations. He withdrew from the WHO. He pressured NATO. 
There was no wars under his presidency that broke out, none, zero. He didn't get, you know, he ended a lot of American involvement in, in foreign, you know, operations. You know, it's not about Trump. He's an ant. He perceived, he, in part of his platform, part of it was very globalist, okay? Like, well, we'll leave that for another part. I mean, putting the U.S. embassy into Jerusalem is the most globalist thing you could do. But many of his policies were anti-globalist. He was a mixed bag. Whereas the rest of these people are all in on the United Nations and globalism. So Trump gained a constituency of Americans, and whether they understood his philosophy or not, uh, they were attracted to his uh, anti-globalist sentiment, you know, at whatever level they got it. And we've got to get really good at articulating this as a political platform that's not tied to any people. It's a set of ideas. And I think that, uh, you know, I'm reacting to this Lindsey Graham thing, saying this is the best money that's ever been spent. Okay, well, let's go back, and we're going to end this by taking a little trip down Lindsey Graham at a speech at the Republican National Convention in 2008. Uh, can you find that, Tanner? Let's just go out and just kind of, I'm going to, we'll just comment about all the good things he's saying because it really brings Lindsey Graham into, into real clear, a, a clear frame. You ready? Please welcome the United States Senator from South Carolina, the Honorable Lindsey Graham. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, this speech is for the troops. Stop. This speech is for the troops. Yeah, sure. Nice way to start. This is called wrapping yourself in the cloth of something bigger than yourself. The speech is not for the troops, as we're about to hear. Please go on. By every measure... The surge of the troops into Iraq has worked. Stop. The surge of the troops into Iraq has not worked. The United States is out of Iraq, and the Iraqis are aligned with the Shias in Iran. Complete failure. But it's 2008. We were still large and in charge, and our leaders were, our leaders were lying to us. Or maybe they couldn't see the future. Whatever. But let's just listen to this and listen to how what he has to say in 2008, and think about how things are today. Continue, please. It has worked. Sectarian violence and coalition casualties are at record lows. Fifteen of the 18 political benchmarks have been met by the Iraqi government. The Iraqis have a larger, more capable army. Oil production is dramatically increasing. This week, Anbar province, once an al-Qaeda stronghold, was turned over to the Iraqis. American combat brigades who made up the surge have returned home in victory. Now, we know the surge has worked. 
Our men and women in uniform know it has worked, and I promise you, above all others, Al-Qaeda knows it has worked. The only people who deny it are Barack Obama and his buddies at MoveOn.org. Why won't they admit it? Because Barack Obama's campaign is built around us losing in Iraq. We stop, please. This is an interesting comment. Barack Obama was a populist when he ran in 2008. He ran as an anti-war populist, got the presidency, and became a raging globalist and a warmonger. I don't know how that happened. We'd like Barack Obama to step up and tell us the story. But Lindsey Graham is, is, is telling us about a world that no longer exists. It never existed when he told us about it. And look at the, the camera angles. We got all these service people you know, at this Republican Party convention. All these people that are part of the military-industrial complex are leading this party. Is it any wonder why? Kevin McCarthy agreed to an unlimited checkbook for the Democrat liberal order. I mean, come on. There's no difference between, I'm going to say it again, George Wallace, God forgive me. There ain't a dime's worth of difference between these two parties. Strom Thurmond, a horrifying racist. If we don't stop the federal government, we're going to live in a totalitarian world. Hey, they had the wrong reason for thinking this way, but they understood it because their right to take slaves and to have apartheid was being abridged. And they realized that the federal government had the control to abridge their rights. Well, what, what's the next set of rights that are going to get abridged? What, how we, what's the next set of freedoms we're going to lose? Okay, let's continue with Senator Lindsey Graham. Without John McCain's courageous leadership, there would never have been a surge. I know. I was there with John McCain and Joe Lieberman every step of the way. In our visits to Iraq, ladies and gentlemen, in our visits to Iraq, we saw the situation deteriorate. The troops we met, the sergeants, the captains, and the colonels had such respect and admiration for Senator McCain, they felt comfortable giving him something he knows a lot about, straight talk. Stop, please. Remember Senator McCain? was the deciding vote that continued Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, during the Trump administration, an act which precludes human well-being and shackles the people to dependency and unwellness. Everybody respected McCain. Really? Really? Was he really that respectable? That's another guy we should go look at because we're sold these lies. Look at this convention, the warmongering, the the willingness to, to exert American military power around the world, unfettered, unvarnished, not hidden. And look at where we're at today after losing Afghanistan, losing Iraq. I mean, we're in such terrible trouble. We're so overstretched, and yet they're doubling down on this. And why is that? Because the seals are broken. We're involved in conquest and war. That's who we are, the American people. Are we going to continue down this pathway? Do you support this? Do you support this philosophically? 
living in a country that is completely down with war and conquest. Are we really that sure of ourselves? Are you that sure of yourself that we're doing the right thing? Are, and this is so far from our founding documents. So we're going to sit here and talk about George Washington and what a great country we live in. And we don't even have a country anymore. We're part of the United Nations. Let's get our heads right about what's going on and make some informed decisions about how we got where we are, where we are, and where we're going to go from here. Let's just continue with a little bit more. They said, Senator McCain, this ain't working. John heard their message and put their interests ahead of his own. He came back to Washington and told everyone, including Republicans, we must change course. For his honesty, some accused John of being disloyal. But John McCain's loyalties, ladies and gentlemen, have always been to his country and to our men and women in uniform, not a political party. Okay, we're going to stop right there. We're going to have to pick this up next time. We're running over. I want to just leave with this last idea. John McCain's loyalties were to the seal that had been broken of globalism and conquest. So was Lindsey Graham. His loyalties are not to a political party. And I understand the parties have problems, but what they're saying is the people in the Republican Party that want to maintain self-governance and provide for the common defense and to limit the ambitions of man and to limit the ambitions of America to taking care of America, they're wrong. These people have a United Nations view of politics. And that's what I want to leave you with. We have to sort this out very intellectually, very specifically. There's not a right or wrong in here. There's a bunch of choices we have to make. It's not absolute. We're going to live in a globalized world. How are we going to do it? And what politics are we going to ensue in our own country? Are we going to completely give up our Constitution? Because we're working on it full blast, just giving it up. It's just a document that's hanging on the wall. Are we going to maintain our tradition of self-governance? Does this matter to we the people? It's our decision. It's not their decision. So you got to ask big questions like, do we want to live in a country that's continuously involved in war and conquest? Is that who we want to be? Why do we know that's who we are? Because that's what we've been doing since 2000 and Bush. Okay, 2000 and Bush, we started going down this road. And Lindsey Graham misses Bush, okay? They miss him. So as we go into this next political season, let's be very careful who these candidates are. We know who the Democrats going to run. They're all in on globalism. That's their baby. They don't call it the post-World War II Democrat liberal order for nothing. It's the Democrat liberal order. Are we going to modify this so that we maintain self-governance? That's the question I'm asking myself. I'm asking you. And if you want to maintain self-governance, what are we willing to do? So please spread this out. Let's build this community. Let's get a big constituency going of people, first here in Minnesota, working together to maintain, to rebuild, to restore self-governance here in the state of Minnesota and then in every state in our union. And on that note, thank you for letting me run over.
Um, we're going to pick it right back up here. We're going to react to these people. We're going to start paying attention to what they're saying, and we're going to put it in the framework of history so that we can understand it and then talk to our friends and neighbors about it. We've got to be on this 24 hours a day. And on that note, I wish you well-being, and thanks very much for joining.